tell me a bit about um the I know that one of the one of the ways I actually came across your what you're doing is your game, right? Like your your Viking game. So maybe just start by telling me a bit about that. I think that's super cool. Yeah. So I kind of, I don't know, had this artistic awakening when I was, uh, oh man, three or four years ago. And I, I had kind of always thought about doing creative projects like writing. Um, I'd loved board games for a long time. I had a few board game ideas and uh, kind of the rubber hit the road. I, I kind of got focused. There's uh, I'll tell you more about the book that kind of got me on that path later, maybe. But uh, yeah, writing books, uh, started designing games um, and uh, not video games, but board games and joined some design groups, uh, joined some writing groups. Uh, so uh, funnily enough, um, I kind of felt like I lived for, under a rock for the last you know, two or three years. And then just in the past year, my, my first book came out, my first game came out and people are thinking like, oh, this year must have been so prolific. <laughs> Like no, this is this has been going on for at least three or four years, sort of uh, under under wraps. But yes, uh, All Thingy is a uh, card game set in Viking Age Iceland, and uh, I know you've got an interest in uh, Iceland as well, so we can chat a bit about that. Um, super interesting period of time. Uh, uh, the All Thingy is actually still the name of the parliament uh, in Iceland. It's one of the longest running sort of governmental bodies in all of history. Uh, uh, they were meeting back in like nine the nine hundreds, and that's when the game takes place. Um, uh, and so basically you take the role of one of the powerful chieftains in Iceland at the time and uh, uh, every year the Vikings would gather to feast, they'd trade, they'd barter um, at this place called uh, Thingvellir. And you can actually still go there. It's a national park now today. Uh, and um, uh, you're vying for the most influence. So you're bribing Vikings with Viking treasure as they arrive. And then you're inciting the Vikings that are sort of in your following to challenge Vikings from other um, chieftains camps to home gang or duels. And uh, everybody is trying to accrue the most influence. And it's this fine balance of kind of trying to gather strength to yourself while challenging others and uh, not making too many enemies uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah quick to play 45 minutes um, two to four players and it just successfully kickstarted back in uh, November end of November we hit our goal and so that'll be coming out in 2021. Awesome I can't wait for it to come out so tell me a bit about then like this process of how you went from like where did the idea come from I kind of I wanted the whole process everything from like the idea to like um, how you then like move forward with the kickstarter campaign all that stuff super interesting to me. Yeah, it was it was a long process. Let me tell you that. Like, I'm not joking when I say like three, four years of sort of like uh, development and such. Uh, it's actually not the first board game I've created either. Um, this is I think was the third game I'd made, um, and the other two, um, the first one uh, I think will be published, uh, but it just got stuck at the art phase. That's a big uh, uh, tripping hazard for game designers uh, in the board game industry. Um, uh, working with artists is, is great. Artists are incredible, but their sort of um, their time frame and the way they operate is a little bit different than the designer. Oftentimes, they're kind of coming onto your project in terms of they, they are the artist for your project. It's not really a shared collaborative thing. And so working out like how's payment going to work and what's the scheduling for, for time can be can be challenging. So uh, for whatever um, uh, multiple reasons, first game kind of got caught in that development stage. I learned a lot of lessons there. Um, second game, uh, I, I still think it's a good game. It needs some polish, uh, but it just didn't have that. Um, I, I would tell people about it and they would say, oh, that's kind of cool. Whereas with the other two games, they just get super excited. And I thought, man, I'm really catching something here. I'm catching people's interest. And you need that sort of sort of fire to, to spark when you uh, create a game if you want to get enough interest to kickstart it or get it funded. Um, so this game started about two or three years ago. I was 
super deep into uh, Viking history. I, I got kind of obsessed in my last few years of university um, with uh, uh, the Icelandic sagas, which are these sort of semi-mythic uh, uh, stories about some of the first uh, Vikings to come to Iceland, as well as the Norse myths. And the reason we know so much about the Norse myths is actually thanks to the uh, uh, literature, literature traditions in Iceland, because uh, Snorri Sturluson um, uh, uh, and even just a lot of the historical events that led to Vikings being in Iceland helped preserve some of those stories and that culture long past when it uh, existed in Europe, uh, specifically because of uh, Christianization and sort of the rewriting of history around uh, uh, kind of a more Western Christian narrative. So anyways, I, I was super deep into that. And I, I literally, same with my story, kind of felt like things were just like falling out of my head. Like I was, I was trying to pack so much in there that I just had to had to have some sort of like pressure release. So, um, so yeah, I've been reading a lot of the uh, Icelandic sagas involved going to the all thingy at some point, uh, bringing a legal case there. Uh, often the the hero characters are um uh outlawed at the all thinking so if they've murdered somebody or they've caused offense they, they get outlawed and that sends them on some adventure One so so this game it's not it's almost in some ways not just like uh like you didn't just come up with the stuff yourself you act it's actually based a lot on research oh yeah and um i i was uh it was a good mix of sort of the the myths and the actual history and some people actually for a long time people thought the Icelandic sagas were completely mythical, um, but archaeological um, discoveries in the last even just 50 years have proven that a lot of these locations that are referenced um, have, have been backed up by by grave finds and by um, sort of buildings that had existed there. Um, so yeah, there's there was a lot of uh, a lot going on. So it wasn't sort of just kind of an offhanded thing. This was sort of years and years of kind of digging through this kind of stuff. And I thought, wow, what a cool uh, part of history. I love the idea of setting a board game in a historical context. Um, I, I also write fantasy, so I love I love fantasy context. Um, anybody who knows me knows that. But it was a it was a fun sort of challenge to narrow it down to that specific time. And the characters in these sagas are just they're fascinating, like men and women, just the adventures that they have and uh, their personalities. And I wanted to capture a bit of that in the game. And so a lot of the characters are um, nods to or inspired by actual characters in the Icelandic sagas. How cool is that, man? Because I, I, I've read several Icelandic sagas. Um, yeah. I, most recently, I'm probably saying this wrong, you can correct me, but the Heimskringla yes. saga yeah. of uh, the Northern, the Norway, Norwegian Kings. I love that one. So that, not, probably not based on that at all, but... That one, I just read that one recently. That was super good. So I can't wait to see all those characters represented there. Who are, who are some of your favorite characters from the sagas? Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I'm happy all day. Okay, here we go. Um, so there's like the really well-known sagas and then there are all these sort of um, smaller, typically family sagas that uh, you may or may not be familiar with depending on kind of what you come across, what translations you have access to. I was really lucky to find the one corner in the university um, that I was going to at the time for my degree, which had nothing to do with Vikings or history or games. Uh, <laughs> I, what, I, what was the degree in? It was an education. It was it was okay. teaching. What? So it was that... great. Yeah, I love teaching. It's great. Yeah. Um, so I didn't I didn't flunk my last semester. I didn't flunk my last year, even though I spent way more time than I probably should have in the library, uh, dusting off the back shelf with all the Icelandic sagas and Norse myth translations. But uh, but yeah, um, so a few of my favorite characters. Um, and uh, there's a range in the Icelandic sagas between very um, you know historically more you know what we think of as historically accurate and, and sort of more mythic. But uh, um, uh, there's a character called Arrow Odd. 
And uh, if you're going to dive into an Icelandic saga and, and you want to go for a bit of a roller coaster ride, uh, check out Arrow Odd. Um, he's this interesting character who, um, not specifically Icelandic, he's actually from Norway, um, and he's born, uh, he's fostered by uh, another Jarl nearby. That was a very common thing in the Viking Age, is for um, powerful families to kind of foster each other's children. It was a great way to build um, relationships and alliances and to uh, kind of give them other skills. And he goes on all sorts of magical adventures. One of his most awesome things, this is almost like Marvel comic level style things is he has these arrows that's his name arrow odd that when he shoots them they fly out and then they return back into his quiver so what? Him. yeah it's really cool I, I gotta read this saga that sounds gnarly i love it oh it's amazing and this one is a little bit more on the fantastical side but sure. uh, just other little like tidbits so he ends up going north to the land of the sami and uh the sami were revered by the vikings those are the people who live in northern norway and sweden and finland uh also known as the reindeer herders you may have seen some national geographic stuff on them uh the vikings sort of revered the sami they, they called them the Finns. that's actually a rather derogatory term or the laps um that's a bit of a derogatory term um in terms of that specific context so for the sami uh but yeah they were um revered for uh uh, having magic the vikings thought that they were mm. um you know shaman and had all these magical powers so um odd goes up to visit the the sami and actually ends up stealing some of their treasure and in return they blow him uh off course to the land of the giants and he ends up going to jotunheim for a while uh and uh you know finds his way back eventually uh he also has a um like a uh, like a white or a shadow version of himself that starts to follow him around partway through the story um and it's this sort of zombie who's got his own zombie crew and who kind of chases him and they've got these sort of um uh, epic fights and at one point in time the the, the norse sagas and icelandic myths are just deliciously grotesque um and at one point in time he's, he's fighting this 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 wraith who's kind of his shadow self and he grabs the wraith's face and pulls the face off and then the uh, the wraith puts his face back on and starts laughing like stuff like this like so nothing nothing fantastical at all it's all, all just straight boring history completely boring history yeah with i will get a little Warning and read Islamic, so you know uh, they loved family history. So the joke, uh, typically in um, in uh, circles of people who like, like Icelandic sagas is, you know, it all starts with, there was once a man named Thorstein who was the son of this, who was the uncle. And it just goes on and on. And every time a character comes on, they can't just say, you know, Bjorn showed up. They got to give his family history and what farm he grew up on and who his uncle was. And the, you know, maybe they'll go on a little tangent about, you know, a story that's well known about their family. So it's a very sort of wandering narrative sometimes and it can take a while to get into. But uh, if you invest yourself, it's it's well worth it. They're uh, uh, amazing sort of historical pieces of literature, so. Well, they're, they're just super into family pride in general, right? I mean, that's why they're always getting into like family feuds and stuff. Oh, the feuds, I tell you. Yeah, the feuds to rival like Game of Thrones. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned pride because um, uh, a lot of people don't know that um, Iceland was originally settled by Vikings because um, there was a king in Norway named uh, Harald Feinherr who was uniting Norway as we think of Norway today as a single kingdom. And uh, uh, in many ways he was celebrated, especially in Norway. There's a, um, a statue of him where my family actually comes from in, in Hogsund. Um, but uh, uh, the Icelanders actually, uh, absolutely despised him. And a lot of the Icelandic sagas begin with um, this thing, well, Harold Feinherr was conquering Norway. He was charging people taxes, which was um, 
more of a mainland Europe, sort of a, a monarch, a king kind of thing to do, not really the way the Vikings would have done it. Um, and he was basically destroying kind of the culture and the way of life. He himself wasn't um, uh, sort of proselytizing with Christianity too, but that would that would quickly soon follow. And so a lot of the original Icelanders are actually fleeing to Iceland, uh, both for political and for cultural reasons. I don't know if I'd go as far as to say religious reasons. Some people like to make a big deal of um, if they are um, sort of uh, of the heathenistic mindset, which I am not personally, but they'll make a big deal of it being a religious thing. I, I think it, you, if you look at the historical evidence, it was mostly mostly a cultural and a freedom thing. Um, it's sort of economic, sort of cultural. Yeah, um, I, I feel like economics would play a lot into that, right? Because if they, if they kind of had a lot of, like if they had money and they had memes, um, and then there's this king coming in and they, they, that's going to be put in jeopardy, that might motivate them to go somewhere else. Oh, I would think. totally. And I mean, the economic landscape of Scandinavia, the Viking Age, is, is brutal. And that's one of the, like, people think of the Vikings as sort of this unified force, you know, raiders from the north. And that's how the Christians sort of saw them, because they couldn't, you know, they're trying to piece two and two together. Why are all these, you know, terrifying people who are not afraid of death coming and robbing our monasteries? But uh, it was brutal in Scandinavia, um, both climate-wise, farming in Scandinavia is very difficult, um, and, and their uh, system of inheritance was also very one-sided. The oldest son got everything. Um, the sec It wasn't like we split it between the oldest and the second son. You know, if you're a daughter, forget it. If you're a second son, third son, forget it. And so a lot of um, Vikings looked at sort of the prospects in Norway, and that's one of the reasons they were, um, you know, uh, rating so often is because that was economically was really their best choice um and so to have the additional pressure of uh, taxes and a king uh for some families that was that was just too much and people did fight harold fine hair there was a few key decisive battles and it's actually rather extraordinary that uh he was able to unite norway there's some question as to whether he was really a historical figure or not i think um whether or not all of our details like in heimskrim uh is you've uh, uh, read there um are accurate who knows uh, it's hard to tell with those but he, there was definitely a figure <coughs> series of figures. He, he was definitely very like, he was almost kind of like, I can see why people doubt if he was real or not. I mean, I don't know anything about that, but like he's, even when you read the Heim, the Heimskringla saga uh, and you read about like these kings, they all like, it's only, it's like everyone's a grandson, a grandson of Harold Fairhair. It's like, you know, like yeah. the, everyone's like, yeah, I'm really into uh, Harold Fair, Finehair or Fairhair that way. That's Finehair, isn't it? And then, um, you know, that, that makes me like eligible to be king of Norway, right? Yeah, that justification was big in the monarchy. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that, yeah, fine hair, fair hair. His, his enemies, a lot of the Icelanders actually refer to him as tangle hair or like shock head is another uh, translation of, of that one, which is a little more derogatory. But uh, but yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a central figure. And his father, Halpin the Black, it, his, I think laid the groundwork for him to have all the success that he had. But yeah, he was no doubt an extraordinary figure. Actually, um, if you're into historical fiction, uh, Lenny Hardesuker does an amazing series um, called uh, the Golden Wolf Trilogy. And it sort of uh, doesn't follow the exploits of Harold fine here but it's sort of it's it's of that era she kind of like takes the perspective of a few other characters who are involved in those sagas kind of fills up some details that we uh, are lacking historical uh evidence for and sort of fills in their characters and their stories and lots of times with iceland back and forth um the pharaohs in in uh, scotland that's uh, uh, an important sort of region as well um, yeah lots of history there so so cool so tell, kind of taking this in like how how this turned into the game like what was uh how did what was kind of like the next step once you kind of had all this information and you, you knew you're making the game what, what happened then great question so um this was the third game that i had designed and so i had a little bit of experience i'm not an expert by any means but i had a little bit of experience um uh you know going through the design process uh you know i had this is classic game design right you have this idea it's brilliant oh it's gonna be awesome you know it's gonna be so perfect you put together a prototype which sometimes are very rough i like to do photoshop i teach some graphic design in school and so i had some ideas there kind of put some time in and uh, uh every game designer knows that when you bring your prototype to the table for the first time um the playtesters just 
break it to pieces. And then you, <laughs> the process of game design is putting it back together, sort of polishing it up a little bit, tape here, a little bit of tape there, a little bit of super glue here and kind of making it work. And so um, I, with my first game, I was a little bit ambitious. Um, uh, not that it, uh, it ended up working out, but it was a long sort of like play testing um, road and there was a lot of balancing to do because it was a semi-cooperative asymmetric game where um, every player was trying to do something different and it was like partly cooperative and partly not uh, very complicated so this one um, i wanted to make a mechanic that was a little bit more approachable maybe for newer players uh, but still had enough strategic elements to engage players who like myself are sitting down at the board game table every week playing a different game sort of thing so i my original idea was to have a game where there's only two values on a card and that sort of spawned this uh, uh, idea of sort of merging with um, the historical all thingy where, you know, strength was important. It was important to have strength, but it was also important to have influence. And I, so I decided to base the game around these two um, values, this values of strength and value of influence. And it worked really well because uh, every Viking in the game has both a strength value and an influence value that's unique to that Viking. And um, the way that they're bribed are with these loot cards. And the loot has like a Viking treasure, which are all sort of inspired by actual archaeological sort of treasures, and a weapon, which is uh, based off of the kind of weapons that Vikings would have had. And once again, the loot cards have a strength and an influence value. So the resource that you have for fighting and for acquiring Vikings um, is in the same card. And you have to choose uh, as a chieftain whether to um, you know balance yourself more towards the strength side, being aggressive, attacking other players, or more towards the influence side, where you're trying to accrue you know influential Vikings to yourself um, in hopes of sort of creating an influence buffer that will uh, allow you to win the game. So that's uh, awesome. And I think uh, that sort of captures uh, not in its fullness, uh, but uh, a little sense of what it was like to be a chieftain in the Viking age, because you could not be a Viking without uh, a chieftain without influence. Um, but you also could not be a Viking influence without strength. Um, that would that would not go over well for you and it would end poorly as it does for many in the saga. So <laughs> But uh, you know, I think those I think those games are kind of like at that midpoint where it's like there's enough strategy to be satisfying, but not so much that you're sitting there and fiddling with like a million pieces and stuff. Um, one of my favorite games. Have you played a game called Citadels? It's a German game. Love Citadels. Citadels is great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's like one of my favorite games ever. So I, that's like kind of like to me like that's like man, that's like the perfect game. You know? I don't. I don't know. Yeah, and I think board games are kind of a. a experiencing a bit of a golden age both in terms of the number of games that are being designed and for the support you know the the, the crowd of fans who are um literally funding crowdfunding these projects in a way that you know i don't few industries i think have this sort of thing where the very best of the industry happen on crowd uh funding uh, oh yeah like, um you know like the best cars are not being you know crowdfunded they're no. being made whatever right right the best um um, uh, I mean, you could argue uh, this, but, you know, like the best clothing lines, right? Like the best vacuums, you know, they're, they're, and there's innovative things happening on Kickstarter. But in board games, the best of the best of the best, like the triple A, like top of the line games are all crowdfunded. And uh, I just think like from a philosophy perspective, it's really cool to be a part of that process of, you know, putting something forward to the fans, kind of letting them decide whether it's worth being funded or not. And then, you know, you know, either having your project funded or um, seeing things not go rather than, you know, um, the process of it going through, you know, marketing and executives and them sort of guessing based off of, uh, you know, what they can what they can sell in, in kind of mainstream stores. It's just a different sort of uh, industry. So. Well, it's interesting, too. And I'm sure you've thought about this since, you know, you've, you've done so much in the game making space. But it's really interesting to me that it's almost like a like a like a reaction that, to video games because you would think in this day and age when video games are so amazing and you would think like people would have no interest in board games but i feel like the contrary like has happened where board games have actually grown 
people have, like their interest has grown towards board board games, even though there's like, you know, just go play online. Right. It's, it's really interesting. I don't know. Oh, totally. And actually, I think there's a whole psychological thing going on there where like sort of the, the explosion of popularity for video games um, was uh, was I, I myself enjoy video games. I'm not a big video gamer, but I, I definitely appreciate them and played them growing up. Um, but I think that did drive people to um, social contexts that were a little bit less sort of face to face. And I do think also with the rise of social media that uh, people are a lot maybe less comfortable face to face like our generation, uh, you know, than uh, in times past and board games provide this really interesting sort of like social almost like um, you know, half structure uh, to any sort of context. I was actually talking with a, another friend earlier this week about, you know, if you go into a room with six random strangers and you're just said, you know, socialize, you know, that's, you know, that's a, right, you're laughing already, right? That's just awkward, right? Like everybody's right. around twiddling their thumbs. But if you put six strangers in a room and give them a board game to play, that sort of uh, gives them a common purpose. It gives them a kind of a soft set of rules to sort of structure the time and can be a catalyst for some uh, really good sort of social uh, contact and uh, interaction. And so I think that um, actually the isolation that we experience because of technology has actually spurred the popularity of board games because board games have acted as that medium that can sort of bring us back together and provide a little bit of structure to sort of get us started with those social interactions, making those face-to-face -face connections. Um, of course, COVID throws everything out the window here this year, but uh, that's that's my theory and I'm sticking to it. So. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Uh, and it, according to normal rules of life, non, you know, like non-COVID rules of life, <laughs> yes, <yeah. laughs> everything kind of goes out the window right now, but yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's so cool. So how much, I think I looked at your uh, Kickstarter page and you, would, I think you raised around, tell me if I'm wrong, it's around seven grand that you raised? Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was like $8,700 was our um, kind of final goal. It was, uh, the Kickstarter goal was 7,800. So we surpassed oh, okay. our first stretch goal. And uh, yeah, super happy about that. This uh, was, um, and it, it, this is a strange year. And so to, yeah, uh, for the project to have been successful, I'm super thankful, um, uh, just blown away by the uh, backer support. Uh, working with Outlands, uh, who's a publisher of comics, board games, uh, books, all sorts of things. They were great to work with as well. And um, yeah, we were able to raise the funds within the, the, the time. And now we're in the process of, um, uh, you know, ordering the games, um, staying in touch with backers. Uh, that's, if you're going to get into crowdfunding stuff is there's so much to learn. And I, I actually got to help my friend, um, Ian Stewart Sharp. I co-authored a book, um, which was an old Norse phrase book called old Norse for modern times, which we kick started in, um, August. And, uh, it was really helpful for me to uh, do the campaign with him. He's done several already and just kind of watch his process for, you know, how he, um, reached out to, uh, folks, um, how he kind of promoted it, the pacing of, you know, uh, releasing dates and information, um, structuring the stretch goals, um, expectations for post campaign. A lot of people don't know that when you pledge to a Kickstarter, um, and you see all those pledges go in when it gets funded, that's great. The money hasn't actually been charged though. And after the Kickstarter, um, they process the payments and uh, most of them go through, but you can expect anywhere from about five to 10% of those to um, bounce and they, they won't go. And so you may have, you know, kickstarted $10,000 but really you need to expect to work with about $9,000 because there's going to be this sort of flex in terms of the pledges that don't go through. So um, I think that is maybe a mistake that early stage, uh, you know, game developers or indie game developers for the first time might make is that they might think, oh, I need exactly $6,000. As long as I kickstart exactly $6,000, I'll be fine. And there's, uh, oh, there's just- You need some wiggle room. 
Yeah, they definitely need some wiggle room. Um, also, uh, there's the headache of, um, uh, you know, uh, printing and production, right? Like, can you work with a printer? I had some good friends from Alberta who were game designers, um, uh, designers of the game Chai. I don't know if you played um, the game Chai. It's a no. TV game. Uh, it was really fun. It's hugely successful on Kickstarter. Uh, but they had an issue with the company they were working with overseas where they got their games and they were it was something like 23% deficient. Um, oh, man. And they weren't. They could. They, they had no. They just had to buy another twenty percent of the. And this was. We're talking at the tunes of thousands of dollars, right? Yeah. Uh, so things like that happen. And then there's warehousing and storage, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever seen like a thousand games. That's a lot of games. <laughs> and a lot of people don't have room, you know, in their now. That's that's a lot to, to hold and handle. And then there's shipping, right? If you don't have a um, a warehouse to ship out of, shipping is extremely expensive. And of course, um, uh, backers sort of take that on. Um, at some point, most games standard, uh, you, you pay for shipping in addition to your pledge. But uh, uh, as much as possible, you don't want to pass uh, too much of that on to your uh, backers. You want to sort of minimize that for them. So um, having gone through the process, it almost feels uh, as if, you know, people think of like Kickstarters, oh, these just people in their houses just sort of have an idea and they post it up and they get funded. There's a lot more to it than that. And uh, if you're interested in learning more about Kickstarters, uh, Stonemeyer Games has an incredible blog. Uh, they've had done a bunch of games. One of their most recent ones, I love that, um, Wingspan. I don't know if you play Wingspan, but it's a beautiful game. Of, Sounds it's great. About it's about birds. Like, who would ever, <laughs> like, literally a bird watchers game, but uh, uh, I play it. Oh, I've heard of this. My brother was telling me about this. It's it's a great game, and so yeah. they, they have a ton of Kickstarter experience, and they actually talk a lot about their um, process of learning how to do Kickstarters, and it's a great place to start if you want to learn more. Stonemaier Games' uh, uh, blog is uh, is great. Well, congrats on getting that um, meeting your goal and exceeding your goal on Kickstarter. That sounds incredible. I mean, I know you know like I can't even like imagine how how much work went into that. So that's pretty incredible. So since I, I while I have you here, I'd love to hear also a little bit about what you're doing on the writing space. So. Don't you have this book about trolls, right? Can you tell me tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So the other thing I started doing um, a few years ago, and I kind of had this like aha moments of like, okay, I'm gonna sort of finally get down to doing these creative things I want to do. Is I started writing a book, uh, and I'd been writing this book probably for three or four years pr prior to that. And uh, uh, classic sort of beginner writer thing. I'd get into the first chapter, get all excited for two or three weeks, and then you know I'd kind of drop off for another six months, and then I'd come back to it and I'd get all excited, uh, but read it and say, oh, this isn't very good. I'd throw it out and start again. So I finally got down to business about three or four years ago, and I finished my book, um, went through the process of querying agents and publishers, uh, found a publisher actually here in Canada, which was really cool because um, as a Canadian author uh, working with the Canadian press, uh, that was just kind of a unique uh, opportunity and uh, kind of a cool thing to be able to do. Um, uh, so that came out in May. Once again, COVID crazy year was supposed to be this big launch for the book tour around the kind of the West Coast and that all went out the window. So uh, uh, yeah, but no, it's uh, inspired by the Norse myths and the Icelandic sagas. Again, uh, it follows the story of Torn Tentrix, who uh, lives in the realm of Noros. And the realm of Noros is this Northern kingdom, uh, very similar to Norway, sort of surrounded by mountains. And um, uh, the thing that all young people must do in Noros is they must go fight trolls for two years, kind of as a coming of age and also to sort of defend the, the realm and keep it healthy. So um, he and his two friends, Grimsa and Brent, go to Gatewatch, which is a small town uh, in the mountains, a little village where the troll hunters live. And yeah, he's going to be there for two years to fight trolls. And it, it sort of is the beginning of their adventure there. Um, things go awry almost right off the bat. Within the first chapter, they're already thrown off course. And uh, they go on an adventure that takes them uh, into the, the, the caves of the dwarves. And they, they uh, meet giants and they uh, they, they fight trolls. And it's uh, it's an adventure very similar to um, uh, a lot of people compare it to The Hobbit, uh, a very sort of Tolkien-esque adventure um, uh, with more Vikings, with more mead, and more trolls. So yeah. <laughs> 
Is, is Tolkien a big uh, inspiration for you? Uh, yes, definitely. And I mean, every fantasy author says that Tolkien is an inspiration for them. But specifically for me, a lot of people don't realize that Tolkien was like, he, it, being an author was not his main thing. Like he's a professor. He was a professor of linguistics and he was an incredible professor of linguistics, very prolific, uh, created many translations. I really encourage you to read uh, or as listeners to read um, uh, his translation of the saga of uh, Sigurd and Gudrun. So Sigurd is the, the dragon slayer right. who has the cursed Rheingold. Um, uh, Tolkien does an incredible translation of that. Um, and a lot of his fiction is inspired by his work in uh, translating um, Old English and uh, Scandinavian uh Phrases. There's this great story about Tolkien as a professor where um, when he taught Beowulf, uh, he would actually, on the first day of classes, he had a suit of armor, right? He's this kind of guy, right? So he has <laughs> dress up the first day of classes and it, it, where he taught there, um, uh, it, it, there were these um, big closets. Um, I don't know what they would keep in the closets, but these closets at the beginning of the, uh, the front of the lecture hall. So he would hide in the closet um, on the first day. He'd get there early. And as the students came in, they'd be kind of sitting there like, where's Professor Tolkien? Like, this is a little bit strange class is about to start what's happening and they kind of wait and you just kind of peek outside um as students were coming in and then a few minutes like two or three minutes after class was supposed to start where all the um, students are kind of checking their watches and clocks um he would burst out of the closet and start reciting beowulf uh to them fully regaled <laughs> and, like, uh, and this is like this is this is tolkien okay this is this is professor tolkien and he was uh very passionate about that. So can you imagine? Oh man, you should try that sometime when your classes. See what happens. <laughs> I, I need to get a suit of armor first, but yes, I will. Uh, I would love to try that. So that would be great. Um, but uh, so his translations came into play as I um, looked into a lot of these Icelandic sagas and Norse myths. That's one of the things is the Norse myths um, are, are really complicated and. Um, that you really need, depending on how you translate them, that they really come across differently. So there's some translations that are very literal, some that are a little bit more artistic, um, some that are newer, kind of like Neil Gaiman's uh, uh, take on the Norse myths. Um, there are some that are very classics coming from, oh, like ever since they were written, Snorri Sturluson in the 1200s is kind of the first one to really sort of compile these stories and give us some sort of coherent version of them um, written by someone who's sort of invested in that culture. Um, there's Saxon Grammaticus too, but he uh, is sort of writing as an outsider. Um, and so, uh, yeah, Tolkien was hugely inspirational there. And uh, the fact that he could take a lot of those elements and work them into his fiction was something that gave me a deeper appreciation for his work. Um, uh, you don't realize how much of the Lord of the Rings is just North mythology until you have read translations of the Norse myths. For example, Gandalf uh, is a name right out of the Norse myths. All of the dwarves in The Hobbits are literally just like a copy paste out of one of the first sections of the Norse myths where it's listing um, a bunch of dwarves, right? Um, uh, so yeah, and uh, a lot of the themes, a lot of the, I mean, even the uh, idea of the ring, right? The cursed ring, all this sort of thing. Um, he wasn't, uh, you know, plagiarizing by any point, uh, but you could see the inspiration there. And uh, he was a huge fan of Icelandic literature. In fact, at one point in time, he was going to Iceland and his friend asked me, are you going on a trip to Iceland? He said, no, no, I'm not going on a trip to Iceland. I'm going on a pilgrimage to Iceland. So he kind of had this, like, respect for, uh, you know, this landscape of ice and fire that had inspired these stories. Um, and I think, um, uh, Did he actually, yeah. he actually ended up going. I didn't know that. Uh, yes, uh, hugely inspired. And uh, I mean, Mount Doom, there's this volcanic activity, very, very inspired by that. His son, Christopher, as well, who is his sort of literary heir, um, uh, continued that work. And he did some great translations. Um, uh, one of his most, uh, uh, my favorites of his um, is the saga of King Hydric the Wise. And uh, King Hydric's actually pretty boring. Um, he's does like He's got this one little riddle thing that he does with Odin, which I think is kind of interesting. But his mother, Hervor, is actually like, the 
best character of that saga. And she's like, uh, she's like the daughter of a berserker. And she goes and digs up like, um, uh, there's this uh, scene where she like breaks into a barrow and demands a sword of her ancestors. And her ancestors are like, the sword is cursed. Don't want the sword. She's like, I want that sword. Give me that sword. And takes it, <laughs> it spurs this whole adventure. So, you, but you see these connections right with Frodo and oh, the, yeah. like, you know, all this sort of thing. There, there's just so, so many tie-ins. Uh, it just gives a new sort of depth of appreciation for the work that he did and that way he was able to take those sort of historical things and almost preserve them and reinvent them in a way through the Lord of the Rings. And I think uh, uh, one of the reasons why the Lord of the Rings is so uh, inspiring, obviously Tolkien was a genius, but there is some sort of, uh, I don't know, um, uh, literary sort of fire in those stories. And I think Tolkien was able to capture some of that. And I, I wonder sometimes if that's one of the reasons why the Lord of the Rings resonates so deeply with so many people. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I think I think you're right. A lot of people don't know that the that Tolkien was as inspired by the myths as he was. But I was just I was just reading some biographies about him, and like he literally had I think uh, it was called the Viking Club at Oxford, where he actually had like you know him and his friends would read like the Viking sagas together. So and obviously, drink, sorry, yeah. and drink mead and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like a big deal to him. So anyways, so Josh was awesome having you on the show. Um, Really appreciate it. I love I love talking about this topic, and you're a super cool guy. So I'm really glad that you can make it. Um, maybe just can you share with my listeners some of the places where they can get into contact with you, find out about your game, your books, and all that stuff. For sure. Thanks so much. And yeah, thank you for having me on, Joseph. This is kind of fun. Let me uh, nerd out a little bit here together. Uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, if you are interested in uh, learning how to hunt trolls, uh, the Gatewatch is available from Crow's Nest Books. Uh, that's at crowsnestbooks.com, the Gatewatch. Uh, my game, All Thingy, is out through Outland Entertainment. And outlandentertainment.com is where you can find uh, uh, that game there. There's also some info on Kickstarter. And I am probably most active on Twitter. Uh, and so you can find me at Josh M. That is M as in monkey. Uh, Gillingham. Josh M. Gillingham. And I have my own website, joshuagillingham.ca, uh, as I am in Canada here. So uh, joshuagillingham.ca has a, sort of a, a compiled list of all those. And if you're interested in the Old Norse phrase book, uh, you can find more info about that through my website as well. Awesome, Joshua. Thank you so much, sir. It was a pleasure and an honor having you on the show. Thanks, Joe. All right. This has been Keeping Up With Joe. Take care, everyone. Bye.